Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good evening. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This evening, we'll be hearing from Mr. Peter Husey. Mr. Husey is president of his own defense consulting firm, Geostrategic Analysis, which was founded in 1981. And since 2016, he's the director of strategic deterrence studies at the Mitchell Institute on Aerospace Studies. Mr. Husey was the senior defense consultant at the National Defense University Foundation for 22 years. He was the national security fellow at the AFPC and senior defense consultant at the Air Force Association from 2011. Mr. Husey has served as an expert defense and national security analyst for over 45 years. Mr. Husey, welcome and thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you, Hannah, and thanks very much to, let me turn this off here. Thank you very much, Hannah, and I want to thank uh, John Lenkowski, your president, for his support and excellent conversations I've had with him. I want to welcome everybody here and tell you what it is I'm going to talk about. In Washington, D.C., narratives, as I call them, are critical to sustaining policy and to justify, for example, the lack of attention to our nuclear deterrent during the 1970s, for example. One could point to the American policy of detente and peaceful coexistence as the reason for our lessening of our support for nuclear deterrence and for letting the Russians, in their view, the correlation of power dramatically increased in their favor. Now, some 20 years after that, uh, this holiday from paying attention to our nuclear deterrent was justified on the basis of accepting that the end of the Cold War held a new end of history which is another narrative, where we saw serious threats to US security were considered a thing of the past. And what's interesting is detente and peaceful coexistence on the one hand in the 70s, and 20 years later, the end of history narrative became central to American security policy. And those doctrines weren't questioned. They were considered, if you look at the news shows, the media, newspaper articles, books, academic journals, it was assumed that detente and peaceful coexistence was unquestioned US policy, and that the end of history was, in fact, the guideline for the period between 1991, when the Soviet empire ended and the Soviet Union was dissolved through basically 9-11. Remember in 1978, President Carter decried what he called America's inordinate fear of communism. And this was just months before the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan before Saddam Hussein, who was a Soviet agent, invaded Iran before the uh, Pope uh, and Thatcher were elected on a policy of basically being against detente and peaceful coexistence. And at the same time, remember, it was just before the Iranian revolution where Khomeini came to power and the Shah left. What narratives do is they fit the assumptions 
that many right-thinking Americans hold. And these are considered the elites in our academic community, in Hollywood, in book publishing business, foundations, as well as in Congress and in the highest reaches of the Department of State and Department of Defense. Now, as you know, as you listen to me in the past, I do concentrate somewhat on nuclear weapons, missile defense, and proliferation issues, and what I consider the four mayhem brothers, China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. So that will inform a lot of what I say today, but I'll go beyond that. Now let's go even 20 years beyond the end of history where Francis Fukuyama said that liberal democracy and liberal international order had won the day and that we need not worry seriously about particularly totalitarian threats. The Soviet Union was gone. China was on a peaceful rise. North Korea and Iran were hardly talked about. And even though we were hit by terrorism in the World Trade Center in 93, in Kobar Towers in 1990, I believe four, the embassies in Africa in 98, USS Cole in 2000, it was not considered that these were changing anything about the arc of history as some people have called it. Now, 20 years after the end of history, we had a new narrative and that narrative was Global Zero. And what's interesting is the producer of an NBC documentary on nuclear weapons in May of 2019 told a DC audience after showing the film The Bomb at the National Academy of Sciences for a week on a loop, which was not only a film, but it was portrayed on the ceiling of the uh, National Academy Auditorium, which is one massive explosion of nuclear weapons tests after another, after another, and scenes of basically nuclear devastation. The author of this was also the author of a documentary about the Titan missile exploding in Arkansas, a liquid-fueled rocket that Someone dropped a wrench in the silo. It pierced the side of the missile and the thing exploded. The nuclear warhead on top of the missile ended up a number of hundreds of yards away, did not explode. What the Slossel did not tell people was that a liquid-fueled rocket is no longer part of the United States arsenal in any way. We don't have them on submarines. We don't have them in land-based missiles because the fuel tends to be unstable. You have to fuel the rocket. And if you don't use it, you got to unfuel the rocket. Right now, we have what's called solid-fueled rockets that are basically like toothpaste. You can drop a wrench in the silo. You can punch a hole in the side of the missile. Nothing's going to happen. The missile is not going to explode, nor is it going to launch. What's interesting is Mr. Schlossel, when he looked back, uh, this is the guy who also did an episode of Madam Secretary, which I'll also get to. But he said that President Carter was unfairly criticized by President Reagan for embracing detente and peaceful coexistence and not managing the defense of the country very well, particularly with respect to the nuclear deterrent. In fact, Eric Schlossel told his audience at the National Academy of Sciences on May 6th, quote, President Carter had the most robust and aggressive nuclear modernization effort in American history. Well, I went through that and the Peacekeeper missile at the time known as the MX couldn't find a basing mode and was never even put into a procurement, never bought. The submarine, Ohio-based submarine, which we now have, was consistently delayed, did not come into the first 
art article in IOC until 1982 during Reagan administration. We did add warheads to the Poseidon missile and we added warheads to the Minuteman missile. The Minuteman missile was brought into play in 1970. That of course was Minuteman three and it came after Minuteman two and Minuteman one. Minuteman one uh, came into the force October of 1962, the very day that President Kennedy announced that the Russians, the Soviets had put missiles in Cuba. Now what's interesting is that this movie, The Bomb, was, in was basically pushing nuclear bombs are bad and global zero is good and that deterrence can't work with nuclear weapons. We have to unilaterally cut out our ICBMs, a certain portion of our bombers, half our submarines, and we have to do this unilaterally. And what's interesting, if you look at the video, military soldiers marching in uniform were shown to be basically the problem. And what's fascinating is you had soldiers from Russia, China, United Kingdom, United States, and North Korea all mixed together in these formations marching through either Red Square or in front of Mao Zedong's mausoleum in Peking or in Pyongyang or in the United States, all juxtaposed to each other with the message soldiers are bad and nuclear weapons are bad and obviously soldiers are the ones that use the nukes or guard the nukes. And so therefore they both are, we're all in the same kettle of fish. And what's interesting is the film ended the day I was there on May 6th. A group of young college students were explaining how terribly depressed they were looking at nuclear weapons blowing up over a period of 45 minutes. And we were at this subsequent reception. And before the producer and writer came to the stage and walked by was the head of Plowshares, uh, Joe Cirincioni, someone I know quite well who's recently retired. He is also one who wants to unilaterally cut American nuclear deterrent by two thirds. And he turned to the young college students that were standing there and he said, you should all feel really great. Look at all the people, and there are about a hundred people in the auditorium who hate nuclear weapons. So that's the third narrative. We first had detente and peaceful coexistence. Then we had the end of history. And then we had this, let's get rid of nuclear weapons even unilaterally if we have to. Now, each of these narratives are largely false in their core assumptions, but they weren't examined except for Detente was in Ronald Reagan's election in 1980. The end of history was examined only after 9-11. And we're still wrestling with this idea that we can go towards zero nuclear weapons without worrying about modernization and deterrence as if there's a straight line between where we are today at somewhere around 1550 to 2000 warheads deployed in our arsenal uh, to zero. What's interesting is in the, the era of detente in 1970, the Soviet Union did not look at it as where the United States and the Soviets were gonna make peace with each other. In fact, they thought them what they called the correlation of forces had moved so markedly in their direction that a victory of the Soviet Union over the United States was in sight. In short, detente in their view enabled Soviet expansionism. And if you look from Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia up to Afghanistan, 20 some countries fell out of the US or neutral orbit into the orbit of the Soviet Union. 
how you want to put Iran in that category, certainly outside, no longer a US ally, and certainly as we've now come to understand, has become an ally of sorts of the current of the Russians. In a two year window, 1978 to 1980, and this is a decade after detente and peaceful coexistence, uh, six, seven, eight years after the SALT Treaty was signed in 1972, after the ABM Treaty was signed, after the United States withdrawal from Vietnam, in just a two, less than a two year window, you had Iran falling to totalitarian Islam. The Soviets invaded Afghanistan. Saddam Hussein came to power in Iraq and subsequently invaded Iran. The courageous president of Egypt, Anwar Sadat, was brutally murdered by the order of the Muslim Brotherhood for the crime of making peace with Israel. And the Soviets were deploying thousands of INF range and nuclear-tipped armed missiles, upwards of around 2,000 by the end of the decade. Let's switch to the end of history in the post-1991 period. The narrative prompted the United States in what General Herensack has called a nuclear nap or a nuclear holiday in which we didn't build a single new nuclear deterrent system. We didn't modernize anything. Our def defense budget declined from 310 billion to 260 billion and only because, because Republicans took over Congress in 1995, did we gradually at the end of the decade build back up to 300 billion but the intervening V going from 310 to 265 and then back up to 300, we lost, as Senator Sam Nunn said, well over a trillion and a half dollars in purchasing power, which is instead of the hollow army of 1980, we had, I was just reading Don Rumsfeld review of the military he inherited in the year 2001. We had a force far smaller than what we needed to deter our adversaries, far smaller than we needed to to win any kind of conflict, and one in which a third to 60% of the forces couldn't steam, couldn't fly, or weren't able to be put into combat because their readiness was so bad. And as we know, Yeltsin had disappeared from the Russian scene, and what we had was Mr. Yelt, uh, Mr. Putin, who was, everybody thought, well, he was Lieutenant Colonel in the KGB, and don't worry, still the end of history, but. If you go back and read some of his speeches, he talked about using nuclear weapons early in a crisis, what has come to be thought of as escalate to win. We also had Islamic terrorism attack the United States, as I said, in the World Trade Center in 93, Cobra Towers in 95, the African embassies in 98, USS Cole in the year 2000, plus thousands of smaller terrorist attacks against Israel against Arab countries in the Middle East and in Europe, and culminating, of course, in 9-11, which we didn't see coming because, again, we were surprised that it didn't fit the narrative that it was the end of history. And as you know, when the Taliban took over Afghanistan, what's fascinating is if people would look at that history, it's fascinating. The Pakistanis helped put the Taliban in power because they were considered a moderate alternative to Hekmatur and the jihadis that won the civil war after the Soviet Union withdrew from Afghanistan. And it's a fascinating look, but the idea that we helped the Mujahideen defeat the Soviets and then 
they just took power as Al-Qaeda is not correct. Al-Qaeda was created in the end of the 1980s, probably 89, 90. And it was because Osama bin Laden didn't want to fight apostate regimes in the Middle East. He wanted to attack the United States here in America to get us to withdraw from the Middle East and leave him and his jihadi friends uh, there to clean up uh, the apostate regimes that weren't sufficiently Islamic. Now, not only did you see the decline and collapse of attention to the use of nuclear deterrent, our nuclear sustainment of the very old systems also came to not an end, but close. The Minuteman line in the Defense Department got as low as $40 million in 1993 and 1994. And there was an element in the Defense Department in 2000, excuse me, in 1994 that wanted to kill Minuteman as part of a nuclear posture review. But something else was happening was even worse. The Chinese had helped create the Khan network in Pakistan and helped the Pakistanis build nuclear weapons. And in return, they gave North Korea help in building nuclear weapons so North Korea could help Pakistan build ballistic missiles. And not only that, but the Khan network then helped push nuclear weapons technology to Libya, Iran, Iraq, and North Korea. And if you just coincidentally want to look at a map, those are all the problems we currently are having in Iraq, Iran, North Korea, and Pakistan and India with respect to nuclear weapons with to rogue states, to say nothing of the possibility of these weapons being given to a jihadi group. Now, we also had at the same time in 2001 and 2000, and 2000 was the Russian Duma rejected START II. Now, it's been often said that that was because George Bush got out of the ABM treaty, but wait a minute, they're getting the dates wrong. The Duma said, we will sign START II, but missile defense work by the United States has to stay in a laboratory, which is what Gorbachev tried to pull in Geneva with Reagan. He tried to pull it in Reykjavik with Reagan. And it's the same old, same old Soviet and now Russian idea that if you kill missile defense, we'll be nice on arms control. What's fascinating is in 1993, I believe it is, Boris Yeltsin went to the United Nations and said, let's cut nuclear weapons under a start one and start two deal, but we'll build worldwide missile defenses to protect ourselves from rogue states and accidental launches, a policy which ironically, the Clinton administration didn't uh, latch onto. Instead, they killed almost all missile defense work in the 1993 budget and concentrated not on getting the START II treaty implemented because the Duma would eventually turn it down. What happened is they wanted to go to START III, which is actually reduced nuclear weapons even further because and we just completely took our eye off the ball, unfortunately. At the same time, you had a narrative of, remember, detente. Uh, you had uh, end, end of history. And then you had Global Zero, the, we're going to get rid of the bomb. We had something else going through this entire period, starting with Nixon's trip to China. And that was this idea that China could be a powerful country, and though nominally communist, would be eventually adopting all the international norms of liberalism under this idea of peaceful rise. And if you read Michael Ledeen and Mr. Byron's piece that was in the 
March 26, 2020 opinion in Epic Times called How We Won the Cold War But Are Losing This Time. It's an extraordinarily detailed acknowledgement of the huge amount of technology that we've transferred deliberately and on purpose to China, including whole industries, as well as importing on the other side, illegal aliens that are low wage earners. So the top scale jobs are going to China and the low scale jobs were not available, which is one of the reasons we had this horrible stagnation of wages in this country and what's called the gap between the rich and the poor in terms of uh, inequality driven deliberately by elites in this country that said, we can export everything to China and get cheap products at Walmart. And at the same time, we can import people who work for cheap wages from not only Mexico, but El Salvador and Central America. And believe it or not, if you go to talk to the immigration service in any one month, any one year, any one period of time, they have arrested uh, people coming into the country illegally from over 60 countries from around the world, including, for example, during the caravans out down south in the last year from Bangladesh, which happens to be kind of a holding port for bringing in people from Islamic countries that have terrorist past. And I've just recently done some work in terms of these people. Plus, we have an overstay problem and two thirds of the people in the country illegally come here legally on a visa, don't go home. And what's ironic in 1996, we passed legislation saying that we would do something about overstays to figure out when people come into the country and then have to tell us when they're leaving so they'll be able to match entry and exit cards. And believe it or not, we're now, you can do the math, a quarter of a century later, we have not initiated any regulations to do that. Uh, you could given the excellent work we can do with uh, face recognition and computers, you could track who comes in and who comes out. But the tourist industry says, oh, no, no, we don't want to do that. It would harm the tourist industry and so forth. So we don't do that. But that's a double whammy that we're getting with respect to high-end jobs going overseas and low-end jobs getting massive millions of additional people to compete. Now, what was the purpose of the bomb that I talked to this movie? The same gentleman that produced this, also for NBC, produced an episode of The Secretary, which is the story about a Secretary of State. Now, the Secretary of State in this movie, in this episode, was worried about ICBMs. They were on hair trigger alert. And she convinced the president to take them off alert. This, again, has been one of the biggest efforts of the ban the bomb, the, the global zero people, uh, similarly to the taunt and peaceful coexistence people, to get rid of ICBMs unilaterally. It's a big thing that former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry has written a book called The Button. He had an op-ed in the Washington Post today. And this narrative that he has continued to talk about is the Soviet Union and now Russia at any day is going to launch close to a thousand warheads on the United States wipe out our 400 Minuteman missiles, our 45 launch control centers, and the 50 empty silos, which we're also able to have, which means close to a thousand warheads would be launched in the United States. And the question is, for what earthly purpose would the Soviet, you know, the Russians do something like this? His co-author has even admitted that, as the Pentagon itself has talked about, the idea that this is gonna happen is about as remote as possible because the Russians simply don't have 
that number of warheads that they can launch at us on a day-to-day -day basis. They would have to go on alert. If they went on alert, we could go on alert too. We could put bombers in the air. We could put more submarines at sea. And guess what? We'd have more of a deterrent to retaliate with, which would completely obviate the entire purpose of what the Russians would try to do. But nonetheless, today, Plowshares had a conference with Senator Markey, uh, Senator Warren, uh, Chairman Smith of the House Armed Services Committee, and a number of other people. And the theme was, again, to kill the land-based ICBMs, get rid of the cruise missile for the bombers, cut nuclear weapons, cut 200 and some billion dollars out of the defense budget uh, devoted to nuclear weapons over the next decade, and basically do this all unilaterally and go spend the money on social justice programs. So this narrative, uh, there's an interesting piece by Michaela Dodge, who's with the National Institute of Public Policy. She used to be with Heritage. An excellent, wonderful piece here about what is the history of restraint when the United States has unilaterally cut its nuclear weapons, what happens? And what happens is the other guys just continue to build. I wrote on my nuclear blog, which appears on the Maven Warrior website. Just go Maven Warrior and check my name. You'll see in the last five weeks, it's the first blog in America devoted to pro-nuclear deterrent issues. Every Thursday, I post uh, an essay and a or an essay on the bad reporting by the news media, which is easy to find on nuclear issues, but then an essay on some aspect of nuclear deterrence or arms control and so forth. Now, what's interesting is that when you look at these narratives, uh, we're now in a position about where are we going to go? Are we going to go to a new era of great power competition? Are we going to try to do reset again, which George Bush 41 tried to do, Bush 40? one and 43, excuse me, tried to do, Obama tried to do. And I think genuinely this current administration tried to do that in part, but it was very difficult with Russia because Mr. Putin's not in the business of a win-win situation to him. Everything is he wins and you lose. So we're now faced, interestingly, the Obama administration put together a fairly solid modernization effort for nuclear weapons, but which, which the arms control community and the disarmament people want to tear down. They want to get rid of the Long range strike option, which is a fancy word for cruise missiles for bombers. They want to get rid of the land based ICBMs completely, and they want to cut the submarines. Uh, some of them want to cut them from 12 down to six. Now, just to parenthetically, if you look at this, while Congress over the last 12 years, since basically 2010, when Jim Miller of the Department of Defense and Senator Kyle from Arizona made a deal that Congress would support the New START Treaty and the Obama administration would support nuclear modernization, including national, uh, nuclear command and control, including the warhead and sustainment and infrastructure, plus submarines, bombers, and ICBMs. That was the deal was struck. That consensus has continued, albeit it is not as strong as consensus as one might want. It is going in the right direction. So the question then is, what is the narrative that we are going to adopt now in order to get us through the next four years when particularly the next eight years, all of these systems are going to be built and deployed in 2029, 2030, 31 and 32, all basically one after another. There's not a lot of room for error. There's not a lot of room for slowing down. There's also the acquisition has to go well. We're talking about building systems that collectively 
altogether are going to cost probably $300 billion over a period of 20 years. I have to make a point here that you hear big numbers about nuclear deterrence and what it's going to cost you. Remember, two-thirds of that cost is what it costs to maintain our legacy systems that are old. Our ICBMs were first deployed in 1970. Our Ohio-class submarine was first deployed in 1982. And the B-2 bomber was brought to an end in terms of production at 21 in 1997 and 1998. And the B-52 may be the first airplane in American history, particularly in the military, that actually lasts 100 years. Now, it will not be the A model. It'll be the HJ, HIJK, could be MNNOP, but we are, it's an extraordinary aircraft, let me tell you, but our systems are old. In fact, the Air Force as a whole is the oldest it's ever been and the smallest it's ever been, but remarkably, the Air Force in reality has been in combat every day since Desert Storm in 1991. Let me repeat that. Every day, the United States Air Force has been in combat since January 1991 in Desert Storm with the smallest and oldest Air Force in American history. Now, I wanna go through the narrative we hear is the United States planning to build nuclear weapons 10 years from now at the earliest is starting an arms race, which the Russians have already completed and the Chinese are halfway through. What do I mean by that? Russia's about 90% through its entire modernization effort, as Mr. Putin said just recently, and the Chinese, according to the Defense Intelligence Agency, are going to modernize their entire force and at least double it in the decade we're now in. And then the DIA was, the head of the DIA was asked, well, what then? And he said, they will probably double it again, which would put them in the 1200 to 1800 warhead level, which is uh, approximately where the United States and Russia are today. Though I think that's the nominal number that the Russians supposedly have under the New START Treaty. But my understanding is they have considerable more weapons that they may have deployed and certainly can deploy because they can build a thousand to 4,000 warheads a year. The United States cannot build a dozen. So let's look at where we are in terms of the current narrative. And as I've talked to you about this, there are people who want to go to global zero and they wanna do this contrary to 60, 70 years of nuclear deterrent history uh, where we have never, We've, we've slowed down, we have taken a holiday from history, but we've never disarmed to the extent that people are pushing that here. And the push to do this, it comes from four new false narratives that I believe are dangerous, particularly if adopted. They are in sequence. Don't use nuclear weapons even if attacked. And let me explain. The late Bruce Blair, who was head of the Global Zero program at Princeton, was asked in testimony before Congress in May of 2019, what should the United States do if attacked with nuclear weapons? He said, don't respond with nuclear weapons because he said, I want the Russians to be responsible for breaking the taboo on nuclear weapons, not the United States. And incredulously, Congressman Turner and Congressman Rogers asked him again, well, are you serious that if we're attacked with nuclear weapons, we should stay? at the conventional level, and Bruce said, yes. This comes from an idea that if we respond with nuclear weapons, we're war fighting, and nuclear war fighting is bad. So that nuclear weapons are only for deterrence, but not 
fighting back. Now, there are some who said, yes, you can retaliate, but then it's unclear, retaliate against what? Hitting cities seems to be okay, but if you take out the other guy's weapons so he can't fight anymore, that's bad. That's considered war fighting. But I, my guess is if you're Mr. Putin and you see a couple hundred nuclear warheads from the United States coming to demolish and burn down some of your major cities in Russia, you're not going to you're not going to quibble about whether or not the United States is at war with you. I think absolutely they are. The second narrative is that nuclear deterrence is too costly. Let me walk you through a couple of numbers which might surprise you. We've heard about the submarines, we've heard about the ICBMs, we've heard about bombers. The bombers are going to be built, the B21, 100 of them anyway. Whether or not the United States has a single uh, nuclear weapon on them, that's because they are the backbone of our new conventional force. The submarines are 12, and the ICBMs are going to build somewhere around 400 to replace Minuteman. What do you think the current budget is in terms of these three systems, including 100% of the bombers? $7.4 billion. Not $1 trillion, not $268 billion, which you heard today and saw today in the Washington Post, but $7.4 to $7.5 billion for the three legs of our nuclear triad. That includes the cruise missile, the B-21 bomber, the Columbia-class submarine, and the GBSD, the ground-based strategic deterrent for ICBMs. The preponderant portion of the nuclear deterrent is the National Nuclear Security Administration that does all the warheads, does the laboratories, does the infrastructure that maintains the warheads, which we have in the field and in storage and in reserve, as well as those being dismantled, which number in the thousands. It also includes the work we do on national command and control communication. The fancy word for that is NC3. That is mainly black programs, but it is the most critical backbone is how to communicate with our nuclear forces, especially when we're retaliating in a nuclear environment. So that's the, the second one is it's too costly. When you look at 7.5 billion out of a budget of somewhere in the vicinity of $7 trillion we're gonna spend this year, particularly because of the coronavirus and a basically $4.5 trillion budget without the coronavirus, seven and a half billion dollars for the three legs of the triad. And if you killed the long range strike option cruise missile and ICBMs, you would save somewhere around about a billion and a half or $2 billion. $2 billion is not gonna balance the budget. In fact, the people at OMB and CBO won't even notice it because it's not even a rounding error anymore in this. The second thing, the third uh, uh, issue which people talk about is the adoption of something called no first use. This narrative is, well, if we promise not to use nuclear weapons first, the other guys will promise not to use nuclear weapons first. Uh, getting a promise from Iran, North Korea, Russia, or China is about worth the paper it's not written on. And therefore, it's hardly, it's very questionable to me whether or not that's even worth pursuing. But if you're going to, the fourth narrative is that we would respond to nuclear weapons with conventional weapons only. And that would be part of not only no first use, but no use at all. And then I talked to you about the money, given the fact that the amount we're spending is a lot smaller for the modernization. And unless you're going to disarm, you're going to have to spend money simply to sustain what you already have. 
Uh, and those systems are getting older and older and they're getting more and more difficult and more expensive to sustain. And at some point, as Clark Murdoch, formerly of the Center for Security of CSIS pointed out, you're going to, as he said, rust to obsolescence, which is an extraordinarily good way of describing systems that are decades old that you simply at some point in the next decade, you're not gonna be able to sustain even with more money than what you have now. Now, the next narrative, the fourth narrative on top of uh, the three that I mentioned is this idea that we could freeze nuclear weapons and nuclear uh, platforms, which Senator Markey uh, proposed today in his remarks online on plowshares. This was originally proposed way back in 1979, was a Soviet proposal. And what was interesting, it would freeze the United States at the time where we had almost all our nuclear weapons proposals were in R&D and not bearing fruit. And the Russians, like today, were nearly completed in terms of their modernization effort. As Mark, Mike Turner from Ohio, who may be the ranking member on the House Armed Services Committee, he and Mike Rogers are the two people competing for that job. The United States cut its deployed or fielded nuclear weapons by 75% since 2001, as it is assumed the Russians have, and 90% since 1991. But China, Pakistan, India, and North Korea and Russian theater systems have not been curtailed, they've actually expanded. So the question is, did the United States set a good moral example that everybody followed? And the answer, of course, is, is no. The next issue is, as Mike Turner again pointed out, is that arms control is a good substitute for deterrence. That if we simply reduce our nuclear weapons enough, like we did under the SALT Treaty and detente and peaceful coexistence, we'll be okay. Now, what is the problem with these narratives? What do narratives do? They're not necessarily because they're a narrative wrong. They can't actually like peace through strength be quite viable. Let me explain that because I skipped over the Reagan era and Bush 41. What did Reagan do that was so surprising? He upended the narrative that he inherited. Instead of expanding nuclear weapons under treaties that said, we will both agree, Russia, the Soviet Union, the United States, to increase our weapons from 2,500 in 1972 to over 12,000 deployed in the field, long range strategic weapons, warheads. We will cut and cut by 50%. And then we'll cut them again, not quite by 50%, but from 6,000 down to 3,500. So in two stages, from 12 to 6 to 3,500. The second thing Reagan did, which got everybody upset, is he said, let's build missile defenses. And the reason is not to substitute for nuclear weapons, not to be a perfect umbrella, although he did talk about having an umbrella. It means the other guy doesn't get a cheap first strike in. You complicate their ability to hit you first, and you buy yourself time to hit them back, if necessary. Look at Israel. Hamas in 2015, if you can believe it, launched more rockets on Israel than Adolf Hitler launched on Great Britain in all of World War II. Hamas, this is a terrorist group in a tiny country called Gaza, not a country, but a territory. They launched more rockets on the Israelis in a period of about three months than Adolf Hitler launched on Great Britain in all of World War II. Why was Israel able to hit Gaza only with 
very surgical strikes, not have to go to general war, did not have to invade Gaza. Why? Because they had tremendous missile defense systems from Iron Dome to David Sling, which shot down, believe it or not, over 90% of all the missiles that were engaged. And what do I mean by that is some of the missiles Hamas launched came right back down on top of them. Uh, some of the missiles went into the ocean and some of the missiles went into open fields where they didn't do any harm. But the narrative we inherited, and I'll get to this after I go through Reagan, but I want you to remember the peaceful rise narrative, which, excuse me, I mean the Middle East peace process, which is what I'm gonna finish with. Reagan said, we're gonna build missile defenses, we're gonna reduce, and we're going to modernize, even though the force will be smaller. So he said, modernization, missile defense, and arms control. At the same time, you do all of government assault on the Soviet Union. And for those of you who wanna write, read an extraordinary document by a gentleman by the name of Norquist. He's the father of Grover Norquist of taxpayers of America. He wrote a piece back in 2001 for the National Intelligencer, which is a organization of former intelligence officers about how the United States across the board took down the Soviet Union. It is the single finest piece on what Reagan did during the Cold War. Now, remarkably, the arms control groups from the Arms Control Association, Union of Concerned Scientists, all the ones that are currently still around, they opposed Reagan's buildup. They opposed his November speech in 1981, where he said, zero, zero weapons to be built in Europe for INF, said, let's reduce nuclear weapons by half, and then eventually ban land-based missile multiple warheads. And he gave the speech in November at the National Press Club in 1981, all of it was opposed by the arms control community. Every single one of them opposed it. They said it was a trick. They said the Soviets would never agree to INF. They'd never agree to reductions. And SDI, which he proposed in another year and a half, they also opposed and said the Russians would never agree to it. And what Reagan did is he created revolution. We did reduce nuclear weapons by, when you look at it from 12,000 down to 1550, we have built missile defenses, albeit a limited number. And the Soviet Union is no more. Soviet empire is no more. Reagan never wanted to take down the Russian government. He wanted to take down the Soviet empire, which he succeeded in doing. So peace through strength was a narrative, but it was a narrative that had underneath it very logical, very determined, and very smart policies, all of which were real and worked in the real world. And that's the difference between narratives that get us in trouble and narratives that are actually quite useful. Now, let me finish with some comments about the Middle East peace process. Uh, this is very dear and to my heart because my first speech that I wrote for a Senator when I was a 19 year old intern in the United States Senate was for Gaylord Nelson. And it was on the Middle East peace process. And it was on UNRWA, the Refugee Center for the United Nations. And Gaylord's point was that the UNRWA refugees in the Palestinian camps were basically incubators of terrorism and some multiple number of decades after World War II, why were these the only refugees left uh, which the United Nations was dealing with in terms of 
except for people like the boat people in, in Vietnam and so forth. And he said there were recruitment centers for the Palestinian terrorists and Hamas and Hezbollah and Islamic Jihad, albeit Hezbollah had not been created yet. But his point was the entire fiction behind the Middle East peace process is there is no peace process. The Palestinian Authority, the PLO, were in the business of killing Jews and Americans and trying to destroy Israel. And in the process, they got billions and billions of dollars of bribes from basically the Arab world, the Islamic world, in which they basically stole, as we know, and didn't do anything about peace except for reject every peace process that was put on the table. And then ended up killing Saddam uh, Assad, uh, Sadat, Anwar Sadat, who made peace with Israel. They tried also to kill uh, King Hussein in Jordan. In fact, the Palestinians went to war in Jordan to try to take over King Hussein, who also had made peace uh, with Israelis. Now that gives you a sense of the search for peace in the Middle East through Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, and Obama, was based on the assumption that the Palestinians have grievances, and those grievances are based on not having a state. And as Bill Clinton said in 2014, if you simply gave the Palestinians a state, 75, 80% of all the terrorism in the world would disappear, would go away. And that to me is the biggest fallacy, biggest false narrative that the United States embraced and embraced for a period of 40 some odd years and got us into terrible, terrible trouble because yeah, President Carter writing a book saying, well, what do you think the Palestinians should do? They're trying to fight the evil Israelis and the Israelis got airplanes and rockets and all, you know, missiles and stuff. And the Palestinians, all they got is terrorism. So they were justified. And he called the book, if you remember, uh, apartheid was how he described the Israelis. And I've written essays on this called the grievance theory of terrorism, that these people have legitimate grievances, uh, like under our constitution, instead of peacefully uh, get together and get redress of grievances, they just blow stuff up. And this is true, I mean, pick ISIS or the Taliban or Al Qaeda or Islamic Jihad or Hezbollah or Hamas or ISIS or any of them, they're all the same. They're in the pursuit of Islamic supremacism and getting rid of the state of Israel and removing the United States from the Middle East. And what President Trump did is tell the Palestinian issue, you're on the back burner. You wanna make a peace with Israel? You want a state? Fine, you know where to find us. But the issue in his mind was Iran is the problem, not the Palestinians in Israel. Israel being the bad guys and the Palestinians being the victims. And that's why he moved the embassy to Jerusalem. That's why you now have a peace deal between a number of new Arab countries, including the Sudan and Israel. And the centerpiece is Iran. They're the problem. They're the ones with the more ballistic missiles than any other country in the Middle East. They're the ones that are the prime sponsor of terrorism in the world today. They're the ones that are seeking nuclear weapons surreptitiously under the rubric of the JCPOA, Joint Program Comprehensive Program of Action. It's not a program, it's not comprehensive, it's not joint, and it's got nothing to do with action. As Netanyahu himself has said, it is a camouflage to eventually it will all go away. Everything uh, goes away in terms of uh, the standards. And it's a pathway to nuclear weapons, not a pathway against nuclear weapons. Why would you give a country like Iran the right to enrich 
that nobody other other country in the NPT world, except for the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, all nuclear weapons states, nobody else has a right to enrich what Iran does. And then on top of it, get rid of the uh, the arms embargo that went away October 16th, uh, 2020. And we threw that into the bargain when we didn't have to. And then on top of which, give them $150 billion kind of saying, well, here's the oil money that was in escrow. Here, you go ahead and, and spend it. What did they spend it on? A massive amount of terrorism in part. When in fact, you had a number of court cases, I think five, where judges awarded American victims of terrorism from Iran over $65 billion in damages, which I would have taken out of that escrow money given to the American families that had people killed at Kobar Towers and the Marine Barracks and the embassy in Lebanon, for example, and on 9-11 because there are those considerable number of people, including a court decision in the Southern District of New York that believe the Iranians were also involved in the destruction of 9-11. So the Middle East peace process, I think, has been the worst narrative that we've embraced because we saw the Palestinians as victims. And because they were victims, we excused enormous amount of what they did. The second narrative, which I haven't talked about much, is this peaceful rise narrative. For those interested, Mike Pillsbury's book, The 100-Year Marathon, explains this in detail, that we basically said to the Chinese, we will help you in agriculture, energy, finance. We will let you sell your products in this country. We'll let you steal hundreds of billions of dollars of intellectual property every year. We'll let you imprison people in concentration camps. We'll let you, and this, um, this is the fact, harvest organs from prisoners and sell them on the market to American doctors who can get on a registry and say, here's my patient. This is the blood type. I need a lung. I need a heart. I need, and get this shipped to them in a matter of, there are two books by two women doctors who did this in China, who were forced in prisons to do the organ harvesting, which is beyond anything the Nazis did uh, under uh, Hitler and so forth. So the peaceful rise is probably the single, the, 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 the top of the cherry on the Sunday, so to speak, of narratives that we adopted from the Chinese without question. And the first president that has really looked at this seriously is this president. And what's fascinating, which is a little bit of hopeful, is that a lot of recent online conferences and books and studies and analysis for the next administration have said, yes, China is the biggest threat. But unfortunately, underneath that is, well, we have to, we have to oppose them and deter them, but then we can also cooperate with them. And the question is, it's very difficult in my mind to cooperate with a totalitarian country when in fact that totalitarian country wants to destroy you. Uh, they don't want to live with us like they taunt in peaceful coexistence. There's no no coexistence in that in the uh, peaceful rise idea of the Chinese. They want to turn us. They want to destroy our country in terms of being the number one power in the world. Uh, so with that, Hannah, I will make available to you, and you can distribute to uh, the folks online, the particularly the hundred people or so that signed up, as well as the students that are around, because. Um, there are a number of things I just, let me let me finish with an interesting story. Johnny Foster, as you know, is one of the godfathers of American nuclear deterrence. And he was head of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for research, development, test, and evaluation. And 
He went to seven, six consecutive heads of the CIA and said, we think, and that was true of a number of his people, we think the Russians are spending a huge amount of money on their defense. And the CIA keeps telling us it's only 6% of their GDP. And he said, I want to put together a red team. And they want to look at the assumptions, the narrative of the CIA and the agencies that we can stay ahead of the Soviets technologically because they're only spending 6% of their GDP on defense and we're spending three, four, 5%, whatever it was. And we can stay ahead of them because we have better technological folks than they do. Finally, a guy by the name of George Bush said to Johnny Foster, okay, I'll put together a B team. And this B team looked at all the issues and then they briefed all the intelligence officers in the country and everybody agreed with the B team that the Soviets were actually spending over 25% of their GDP on defense, which had two points. One, they were spending a lot more than we thought they were, but they were very fragile because that had a very, very negative impact on their ability to deliver other things in their economy to their people who were getting more and poorer and poorer uh, as time went on. So Johnny won that argument and the upshot was that the CIA said, okay, we'll change our estimate from 4% of GDP to 6% of GDP. The lesson there is the deep state lives and lives very, very uh, strongly in this town. It's amazing to me, I'm almost 70 years old. I came to this town when I was 19, having spent two years in school in Korea and Japan in college. Narratives that don't begin inside the deep state, they don't like. And they are, they're, they're guardians of the, of the um, catechism. And it's very, very difficult for the, those students who are getting degrees at uh, the Institute of World Politics, it's very difficult to break in and have new ideas. And it doesn't mean you're right, but what my worry is we don't listen to people who have alternative ideas of you might want to consider this. And let me finish with this. One of my Japanese professors told me this. He said, you assume that we could not build torpedoes that when they land in the water from an airplane can become buoyant very quickly and destroy a ship. Why did we put our ships in Pearl Harbor? It's a very shallow harbor. They were safe because we assumed our torpedoes if land in the water will go into the bottom of the bay and hit the silt and no detonation. They're not gonna hit any metal part of a ship. The Japanese crafty as they were, built a torpedo that became buoyant very quickly. And thus, instead of being a safe harbor, Pearl Harbor was a prison where all our ships were sunk, where most of our ships were sunk. And that means that the narrative the Navy had, which is, well, our torpedoes do X, therefore the other guy's torpedoes can only do X. That was what led to the devastation of Pearl Harbor. And it's technological surprise. It's also not thinking like 9-11, also like Sputnik. And the other things we've undergone is that accepting a narrative without question runs you into dead ends because it's designed not to encourage new thinking, not to encourage thinking out of the box. In fact, its very essence is don't connect the dots because those dots don't mean anything. So Hannah, I wanna thank you and my dear friend, John Lenkowski uh, and the Institute of World Politics. I did take a little longer than I thought, but I'm open to 
whatever questions folks might have. Great. Um, yeah, we have time for a few questions. Um, the first question is, um, do you believe that uh, due to the U.S. being anchored into a Cold, World Cold War narrative, do you believe that that was a partial reason for 9-11 occurring? No, because it was after the end of the Cold War. We were in a narrative that was the end of history. We could cut defense. We didn't have a Department of Homeland Security. We thought terrorism was a grievance business that if we gave the Palestinians, remember Oslo, the Israelis put Oslo on the table in I think 1991, 92. And my God, they had more peace deal meetings with the Palestinians than ever before. And there was shuttle diplomacy and there was, and Bill Clinton to his credit got Arafat and uh, the Israeli prime minister on the lawn of the White House and Arafat refused to accept the deal. But because we continued to try to get that deal, we took our eye off the ball, which was they didn't want a deal. And the PLO were basically a shield behind which all the other terror groups, as I said, from Cobar Towers to the embassy, the USS Cole killed us again and again and again. In fact, before 9-11, Hezbollah was the biggest killer of Americans in, this, in the world from terrorism. And they, of course, were created by Iran. My next question, what is the narrative that you think is in place since 9-11 and does terrorism directly affect those narratives? Yes, we had the global war on terrorism and that's another part of my remarks, which I didn't get to. My friend, Jeff Record, who used to work for Senator Nunn, who was down at Georgia Tech in Atlanta, wrote a piece in 2006, I think, saying the global war on terrorism means you do whack-a-mole and everything that's a terrorism uh, outbreak, you go fight. And he said, that's crazy. You have to decide who the states are that sponsor the terrorism and take their money away. That's why the emphasis on Iran by this administration has been so critical. My worry is the next administration will decide to sign that, go back into the JCPOA, get rid of the sanctions and assume Iran's support of terrorism and its ballistic missiles and its human rights violations will somehow mitigate, which I'll guarantee you, in my view, they won't. Another question. Um, what is your reaction to the recent news of the successful ICBM shoot down by a missile from a naval vessel? Very interesting. I just wrote a piece in National Interest on this, and it is great news. We should have done it 25 years earlier. Uh, we did it under burnt frost when George Bush shot down a, a satellite that was broken, and we did it in a matter of months. We figured out how to shoot it down. It gives you an enormous benefit because you don't have to build a ship. You can take the missiles and put them ashore. It's called Navy Ashore or Aegis Ashore. The Aegis is the ship they're on. And you can do it ashore and you can do it in the southern United States because we don't have a very big def good defense down there. We don't have radars looking south. So I think it's a great idea. Now, uh, Laura Grego of the Union Concerned Scientists was all upset uh, yesterday in the Politico saying that this means missile defenses are going to expand dramatically and arms control is dead and the Russians and the Chinese are going to build a lot more weapons. Well, missile defenses mean the other guy doesn't get in a cheap first shot. Okay, disarmament, uh, disarming us in a first strike becomes impossible. 
and therefore missile defenses are terribly stabilizing, as I pointed out with respect to Israel. So I'm all in favor of it. I think they should have done it. God love um, my hats off to MDA. My last question for you is, do the narratives, if any, that happen to occur during um, this administration's term, such as Marxism, liberal influence, et cetera, have any roots in the narrative you put forth today? Could you repeat that, Hannah? I wasn't quite sure I understood what it was you were saying. Yes. Um, do the narratives, if any, that happen to occur during um, this administration's term, such as partial Marxism, liberal influence, et cetera, have any root in the narrative you put forth today? Well, I think the administration, one thing it suffered from was they didn't have an overall narrative for foreign policy. They got accused of isolationism. You don't go to NATO and say, increase your budget by $150 billion over a period of five years because you're isolationist. You don't go to South Korea and Japan and push them to build uh, build up their uh, defense, as well as increase our defense budget from the low 600s to the middle 700 billion, a $100 billion increase because you're an isolationist. The problem is the administration, God love them, uh, did not have a narrative that endless wars was a negative one, which is what we're trying to get out of. Trying to do fair trade deals was a positive, but it had to be put in a larger American uh, context, which was part of it was make America great, part of American first. And then the other one was secure borders was part of uh, getting our sovereignty back. And that also was part of it's not that we're going to be isolationists, is that we got to stop giving the UN control over, I mean, they want to control over guns, they want to control over refugees, they want to control over immigration, similar to what Brussels has done in the European Union, which of course is what Brexit is about. So the person asking the question is right. We didn't have a good narrative, but I don't think the incoming administration has one either, but they'll try to get one probably in the national security strategy or the various documents that a new administration puts out because there's a temptation. I got to come up with a new deal, a smart deal or the great society, which hides a lot of things that it, 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 it's, 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 well, I, I put it this way. I call it teleprompter diplomacy. You know, you put it on teleprompters, looks nice, sounds nice. Everybody goes, oh, okay. But it doesn't necessarily tell you what's in it. I'd much rather hear what is in it and then describe it. Like Reagan said, this is what I'm going to do. And then later he called it peace through strength. And to me, people understood what it was Reagan was trying to do. In 2004, Mondale said, I want to kill missile defense. I want to stop the Reagan buildup. I want to get rid of nuclear weapons. And guess what? He lost 49 states. And the District of Columbia, he lost, he got Minnesota in the District of Columbia. The American people stood up and said, no, that's crazy. So Reagan may not have even used the word peace through strength, but people understood what it was. And the challenge with the Obama administration, I mean, the Biden administration is, are you going to move the embassy from Jerusalem back to Tel Aviv? Are you going to give the PLO an office in New York again with money? I know they're going to go back in the Iranian grill and they're going to go do an extend new start. But there are a lot of things that make up our foreign policy, which they're going to have to figure out. And then they're going to have to come up with, OK, what does that mean?
Great. Well, I believe that is all the time that we have this evening. I would like to thank Mr. Husey for joining us and all of you who tuned in here on Zoom and Facebook. If you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP, or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Hannah. And thank you to IWP. Take care.